Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. Comics, whether you want to admit it or not, have been around almost the beginning of mankind. You know, the caves of Lascaux are comics. The Sistine Chapel literally has sequential panels showing narrative change over time. They don't have word balloons. But it's literally a fucking comic on, on the walls, not on the ceiling. The ceiling is just a giant tableau. But like you look at the walls and it's just, you know, it's it's biblical stories told through image and sustaining images over time, which is what a comic is. I found them when I was really young, probably four or five. I was really obsessed with the Hardy Boys and Nancy Drew and Boxcar Children, kind of boy and girl adventurer detective style stories. And we were at the library and they had a large collection of Hergé's Tintin comics, the Bandesine about a you know young boy reporter and his talking dog. And I lost my mind. I was just like, oh yeah. Oh no, yeah, this, this, this is, this is what it is. This is what I should do. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Dave, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's my pleasure to have you here. So I found out about your work because you wrote in to uh, tell us a little bit about your new book and you know the work you've done in comics uh, and building a career, creative career, all of which we will talk about. But before we get started with that, I want to start by asking you what I think is a very relevant question. And that is, what did your parents do for work and how did that end up shaping the choices that you've made throughout your life and career? Oh, man. Wow. That's a that's like a big ass question for the 35 words that it took you to say that Jesus. Um, yeah, I think the, the, the factual answer is that my father is a, an aerospace engineer and my mother is a, a drama teacher and theater director. Um, I'm from Tucson, Arizona originally, and my mom had a theater out there and, and my dad, uh, worked for various companies. Uh, he built, he built um, mechanical hearts for a while. He worked on a hydrogen fuel cell for a um, uh, for a, for a hydrogen powered car in the early two thousands, and um, also worked on uh, guidance systems for jets. Um, he worked on the SR seventy one Blackbird um, and uh, the Stealth Fighter. 
and I, I think the, the joint strike fighter. Um, uh, so yeah, he, he's, uh, you know, like I said, aerospace engineer. Um, and he's very, uh, he's a very engineer, like to the T very, uh, very kind of, is it right brained with it's all math or creative people are left brain or vice versa? Yeah, it's left if I remember correctly. Okay. Yeah. I, I don't remember, but let's just say whichever, whichever one of those is the stereotype for an engineer. He's that. And my mom is very yeah. creative. Um, she, she, uh, obviously is a theater professor and she's a, a painter and a quilter. She's really into folk art. And, um, yeah, I think that they both had a tremendous influence on me. Um, and what I wanted to do primarily in that, um, they were both like, you should follow your dreams no matter what they are, even if it's comics and there's no money in it. Like being unhappy is, is, uh, is a death sentence. So you should pursue your dreams. And especially, you know, my mom obviously made a living as a creative person, um, as a theater director and as a, uh, a theater teacher. Um, and being able to see that, you know, from her perspective and and you know realizing that there is a path forward you know i think a lot of people might not pursue creative endeavors just because they don't have a role model or they don't they're, they're creative creative careers are really scary because there isn't a rubric there isn't a path you know there isn't a well if you apply for the job as famous painter you will get it mm-hmm. <laughs> and um yeah she was always very uh, encouraging of that and very uh You'll figure it out. Just go make stuff. Um, and, uh, yeah. That's really unusual, I think, for parents to tell you, you know, go follow your dreams even if there's no money in it. Uh, why do you think that is? Why do you think that your parents, uh, you know, encourage that? Why do you think so many others discourage it? And how do we unwind this sort of cultural narrative of the starving artist? Um, I think... My parents were supportive of it because their parents were not. Um, they were both Air Force brats. They moved around a lot. Um, I think they both had um, uh, ambitions to do creative work. You know, my my mother actually did. And, and I think, you know, my father was a musician for a long time and got tired of, you know, being dirt poor and kind of chose to go back to school and become an aerospace engineer, which is kudos to him for being able to do that. Cause I, I couldn't just wake up one morning and be like, all right, I'm going to go be an aerospace engineer. Like I'm not good at math enough, uh, to do that. Um, but he was, and, um, and, uh, you know, I, I think they both kind of, they came from really hardcore military families. They were both, um, told they couldn't do things when they, um, attempted i think that's the i think that's the scary thing i think our culture uh sometimes shies away from the idea of attempt i think attempting and failing is worse than um almost anything in in our culture we want even if it's a a shallow grave of working at 7-eleven there's a lot of people that i think get by off of that kind of there's no risk you know what i mean but there's no Mm -hmm. There's no, um, there's no potential for embarrassment culturally, you know, there's no, um, weird, awkward growth period where you're trying to figure out how to, you're trying to figure out what your style is. You're trying to make connections in an industry. You're trying to uh, develop and hone a voice. You're trying to prove that you're 
a person who can turn work in on time. Like that just doesn't happen when you work at 7-Eleven. Like you just, you punch the clock and you go home. And I think the fa- the weird fallacy within American culture is that we want, we, as a culture, we want that regularity. We we don't want instability for our children and, and our loved ones. We want um, the knowledge that they'll be able to provide for themselves every week every Thursday, there will be a check and you will have health insurance. And, you know, that's the desire, right? And that's understandable um, because creative careers are weird and unwieldy. And if you say the wrong thing or do the wrong thing, it uh, it uh, potentially could all go away. Um, and that's not me being like, cancel culture is evil. I'm just saying like, you know, things happen. People uh, commit horrible acts and their careers are taken away justly. Um, and you know, that's, I mean, that's not even just in creative careers. That's everywhere these days. Thank, thank, thankfully, you know, I think our culture is reckoning with a, uh, a desire for accountability that is very positive. Um, are there slight overcorrections here and there? Maybe, maybe, I don't know, but I think that's a weird way to look at those situations where it's like the, the president or the former president, uh, committed horrible crimes against individuals and against all of us. And uh, I think that that's having a, a, a very tangible echo throughout our culture, um, hopefully in yeah. a good way, um, but we'll see. It's too early to tell. So your parents encouraged you. What would you say to parents who are listening to this? Because we have a lot of parents who listen to this show uh, about talking to their own kids about pursuing careers in the arts. Um, yeah, I think, um, I think pursuing a career in the, in the arts is, um, it's something you need to do if it's the thing you need to do, you know, like, I think there's a, I think that there is a section of the population and this isn't me being hopefully unkind, uh, but there's a section of, of people who want to be artists or want to be writers and, um, maybe they don't have the hustle. I think that's really what delineates successful creatives from people who kind of wash out. Um, and saying people wash out, I'd actually, I don't like that phrasing. I don't like that phrasing. I don't, I don't think life is binary in that way. I don't think that you're a successful person because you tried something and failed um, or tried something and got tired of it and decided you wanted something a little bit more regimented. Um, I think life is long and I think life is complex. And I think sometimes you have priorities that don't match up with your previous self's priorities. Um, and, uh, that's, that's always hard for people to reckon with, right? It's hard whenever an individual starts to change and evolve or decide they want to do something else. Um, in terms Mm -hmm. of the parent question, um, yeah, I, I would just say, uh, to ask your kids, like, are you willing to, you know, grind? Are you willing to really fucking hustle? Because that's what it'll take. And if you're re- if you're really in it to win it, and you have to do this, you'll be successful. You know, it, mm-hmm. it, I don't know what that means for an individual. Like, I don't know if everybody's going to be millionaires, but you'll yeah. you'll be able to pay the bills as long as you are somebody who's always attacking it with uh, ferocity. But not everybody mm-hmm. has that ability, and not everybody has that that privilege. You know, they have responsibilities, they have other needs in their social orbit. Um, and I think that's a conversation to have, you know, like, yeah. you know. Selling a little 
or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. I, I, you know, I appreciate the fact that you've acknowledged the fact that people have other responsibilities and needs, because I think that one of the narratives that we also have, you know, that is counter to the whole starving artist thing is that, oh, you can go and you can do anything, you can be anything, but that doesn't really take reality into account as far as I'm concerned. Uh, 
And I, I want to come back to this. Uh, but before we do that, you know, before we do that, one thing I wonder is, uh, how old were you uh, when this interest in comics was sparked? And what was it that sparked the interest? Oh, man. Um, comics for me is the closest thing I have to a religious calling. Um, I found them. <laughs> I really do, man. I, I think of myself as some sort of you know, this sounds cheesy, but some sort of fucking like warrior monk, like dedicated to furthering the ideals of an ancient cause. Um, comics, whether you want to admit it or not, have been around almost the beginning of mankind. You know, the caves of Lascaux are comics. The Sistine Chapel literally has sequential panels showing narrative change over time. They don't have word balloons, but it's literally a fucking comic on, on the walls, not on the ceiling. The ceiling is just a giant tableau, but like, you look at the walls and it's just, you know, it's, it's biblical stories told through image and sustaining images over time, which is what a comic is. And, um, uh, I found them when I was really young, probably four or five. Um, I was really obsessed with the Hardy boys and Nancy Drew and boxcar children kind of boy and girl adventurer detective style stories. Um, and we were at the library and, uh, they had a large collection of Hergé's Tintin comics, the Bandesine about a you know young boy detect boy boy reporter and his talking dog. Um, and I lost my mind. I was just like, oh yeah, oh no, yeah, this 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 is this is what it is. This is what I should do. And I've basically been making comics since. You know, like I self published comics. I when I was a little little kid, I drew comics and uh, sketchbooks all the time. I <laughs> I think I I won I, I was I was visiting my my parents recently and I was trying to find it but I couldn't find it I I think I won like a writing award like a county fair writing award for this weird little illustrated book that I made where it was I think it was called like Batman's First Ride I think I was like eight, seven eight and I wrote a story about Batman buying the Batmobile and I illustrated it so I like it was like a weird illustrated novel where it was like I don't know five pages of 10 pages, whatever, of me like writing about Bruce Wayne going to a, going to a like car lot and buying the the Batmobile. Uh, and I won some sort of award for it. Like I remember going to the county fair, which is the most Arizona thing I could have said, but I remember going to a county fair and there being like a big glass case with a bunch of pieces of paper, like stories kids had written on it. And then in one of the cases, my Batman you know, Batman's Batmobile or whatever the fuck it was called story. And there was a big blue ribbon on it. And I was looking through a bunch of, you know, boxes at my parents' house uh, a couple months ago trying to find that. And uh, it's either lost to time or uh, or DC Comics has finally come for me. <laughs> <laughs> well, you discovered this at such a young age. And I, I feel like I've had two types of guests here. Those who, you know, have this sort of insight um, at a young age and they follow it, you know, to their grave uh, and they just know this is it. This is what I was destined to do. And then the alternative are those people who had that moment like you did uh, when they were younger, but completely ignored it. Why do you mm. think people do the last? Um, kind of back to what we were talking about before, because society says, you know, you should have a white picket fence and a house and 2.5 kids and a mortgage. And, uh, it's, it's hard to envision those things when you're in a creative space, you know, you're, you're like, especially in an industry like comics where there's not a lot of money. Um, and it's hard to break in cause there's seven people. 
it's understandable. I, I, I get why, why certain people, people would be, um, dis- discouraged, politely discouraging of their, of their young, uh, of like, Hey, maybe, uh, you know, you could, you could like have that as a hobby, but like, what about a career where there's like an upside that's almost guaranteed of like, if you go to med school, you're gonna make a lot of money. Um, yeah. I mean, it's unfortunate. Um, but it's understandable. Um, and I, I, I don't, yeah, I don't know. I think there's something fascinating about it though on both hand, on both ends. I think it's interesting on a character level, learning about people who buck that system and decide they don't want to do it. Um, and I think it's interesting um, because those systems are not as easy as they're presented to us. Like saying that, uh, you know, you can just like, go to school and then get a high paying job is also something of a fallacy. Uh, especially now, like it's, it's very difficult to graduate from prestigious programs. It's very difficult to make connections in any industry. Like, I don't know when the last time you had to apply for jobs were, but it fucking sucks, bro. (laughs) Like it's not fun. (laughs) Um, yeah. Yeah. So one thing that I, you know, I'm I'm just morbidly curious about is I feel like comics have this almost cult like culture around them. It's it's kind of like, you know, when you meet another comic book person, you have this sort of mutual recognition of, oh, you're a weirdo like me. I love you. Um, Yeah. And what why is that? Like, what is it about comics that create the kind of culture where you have something like Comic-Con that emerges from it? Yeah, um, this is uh, a uh, this is a, a, a topic that I love to talk about. Uh, the reason why comics are a weird third tier artistic medium in the United States is because of um, what was called the Keefalver hearings. Do you do you know this story? No, I don't. Oh, so, okay. So this <laughs> is fascinating. I... Good. Oh, perfect. Perfect. I just wanted to make. I didn't know how detail I should make this or or not. Um, but yeah, this is a fascinating story. So basically, um our cultural memory has erased the fact that comic books in the 1930s and 1940s were the dominant form of media, period, full stop. Um, Radio was nowhere near the cultural penetration and cultural ubiquity of comic books. Um, Comic books were selling millions of copies a week. Um, They were selling so much that comic book publishers didn't actually calibrate print runs um to a prospective audience they just would the standard run for a book was basically a million copies and they would know how much a book sold because they would get it back they they were like returns they would get the returns back and be like oh okay so we got fifty thousand copies back so we sold nine hundred and fifty thousand we should probably print a little more next time and then they would you know mulch those books and print more which is a crazy way to do business it's a crazy way to do business um, and so it was so ubiquitous that somewhat similar to how video games or rap music or, um, any of the cultural, uh, boogeymen that we, we trot out every 10 years, uh, it, comic books got blamed for society's ills. There was a, um, psychiatrist named Frederick Wortham, who was kind of a, uh, a luminary of, of kind of one of the first cultural critics. He was like one of the first people to be like, um, yeah, I don't know if, uh, TV is healthy for people to just sit there and watch for hours on end. And one of his first kind of causes that he took up, um, uh, to kind of crusade against was that comics were 
the primary driving inspiration behind juvenile delinquency. So in <laughs> in uh, in about 1954-ish, um, he he wrote a book called Seduction of the Innocent, where he had worked at or did work at a um, a, a, a mental health clinic in Harlem called the Lafargue Clinic. And he was interviewing all of these, um, you know, wayward youths, people who had um, committed horrible crimes to people who had done shoplifting. It was span the gamut, right? Um, the only consistent factor is that this specific um, mental health clinic was founded um, by uh, black luminaries um, and Frederick Wortham, uh, who was a white German man, if you couldn't tell from his name. And uh, so the, the, it was the first free mental health clinic in uh, the United States aimed at African-American individuals. Um, so all of the kids he was talking to were black. Um, and all of these kids who had gotten in trouble with the law or whatever, um, he interviewed them. And they all said that the, the kind of inspiration or the thing they consumed or the thing they enjoyed the most was comics. And so he took that and extrapolated it into, I think comics are permanently ruining children's um, kind of mental uh, acuity. I think that they're dumbing children down, and I think that they're instilling in them a, a, a sense of violence and an urge to commit crimes. Because at that point in time, in the mid-1950s, crime comics were really, really popular. So... What he did is he wrote this book. Um, well, he first wrote an, an article for Life Magazine, I think. Uh, yeah, I think it was Life Magazine called uh, The Comics Not Funny. And, um, or The Comics Very Funny. There were two, there's two articles, one written by uh, the guy who created Wonder Woman, William Moulton Marsden, and one written by uh, Wortham. And they're, they're like, a, they're like a, a duology where Frederick Wortham wrote, oh no, Frederick Wortham wrote The Comics Very Funny. And uh, William Milton Marsden wrote the comics, uh, not funny. And um, they kind of were having this public discourse, uh, a tete-a-tete -tete about, you know, are comics ruining the youth? And uh, he wrote a book about it called Seduction of the Innocent, which caused a massive cultural uh, dialogue that, that, that basically spawned mass comic book burnings. Comics were outlawed in like seven states in the U.S., and a uh, a senator named Estes Kefauver, who was a southern senator, um, was prepping a presidential run. And so he used this as his kind of like cause du jour. And so he um, organized a, a public congressional hearing to attempt to ascertain if comics were actually having effect on the youth of the nation and whether they should be curbed or censored or re regulated, um, much like happened with in the 90s with video games when the MPAA put, or not MPAA, what's it called? The, is the MPAA? The, the ratings board. That, might, you know, yeah, yeah, I know what you're yeah. talking about. I don't know the exact name, but I, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, the, the teen, mature, everyone, those ratings systems that came out of the, the Joseph Lieberman kind of witch hunt uh, video game trials. The same thing happened in in '54 with the Kefauver hearings, where they wanted a regulation, they wanted a censorship board, which ultimately is what happened. Um, the, the all of the comic book publishers got together and they threw 
one of the publishers, the one that was being blamed for the most egregious or extreme content, this this publisher named uh, Bill Gaines, who ran Entertaining Comics, aka EC Comics. They produced uh, crime suspense stories, tales from the crypt, um, weird science, um, very very iconic and and kind of like medium pushing work. Um, and and they all threw him under the bus, and they were like, uh, "Fuck that guy." We're going to start the Comics Code Authority, which was a censorship organization that basically um, made all of the comics really shitty for like 40 years and literally outlawed genres. Like you couldn't have a vampire in a comic. You couldn't have a werewolf in a comic. Uh, You couldn't have the bad guys win. You couldn't show drug use. You couldn't show men and women kissing uh, in any sort of sense other than romantic. Um, And... um, so because of that, the fallout of A, the um, the censorship board, and B, the mass comic book burnings and outlawing of comics, uh, they now have this reputation as being either for little kids, which has now kind of started to dissipate due to the success of the Marvel movies and superhero mm-hmm. movies in general. Um, but specifically, um, the reason why it's a secret handshake is because it used to be the most... Uh, popular medium in the in the country and then overnight was basically cordoned off into non-existent backroom alley bullshit and um so now that censorship era stifled the growth of the medium you know the only thing you could do after the key fall hearings was basically make superhero comics because they were the only thing that weren't directly outlawed um and it's a a, a horrible and depressing state of affairs because comics in America and comics in Japan were basically on a neck and neck um, trajectory for most of the fifties. And then we had the Kefauver hearings and they didn't. And look at what manga is. It's like a, you know, $16 billion industry a year. They have, you know, stories told in every genre, uh, in every style imaginable aimed at children, teens, preteens, adults, men, women, um, grandpas, grandmas, shopping manga, cooking manga, you name it, and it exists there. Um, over here, there are a lot of interesting things happening. I'm not saying that there aren't, but it is um, definitely more of a cult or fringe thing as opposed to mainstream culture. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. 
They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, I, I do want to talk about the, the process of what goes into creating a comic and, and, you know, go back to talking about, you know, the careers of creatives, but um, what's been the, the trajectory, you know, after your parents encouraged you, you know, obviously I know this from having talked to enough creatives that there's no way this was a straight and, you know, narrow path. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. I went to school for illustration. Um, and then I got out of school, had a bunch of weirdo jobs. Um, and then, uh, kind of, you know, decided that drawing my, the style of comics that I draw are, are, are pretty unique and, and not, um, as commercial. Um, but I have interests in a lot of different stuff. Um, and the, the, the way that that could help leverage paying bills is to write stuff for other people. So, um, I still draw comics. I, you know, work on them every day. Um, but I think over the last, you know, however many years, um, I've developed a little bit of a career as a writer of comics or basically anything else. I've written infomercials. I wrote a feature film. It's on Netflix right now. I wrote for, um, uh, Cartoon Network's Ben 10 reboot series. Um, I've, uh, written, I, I literally worked for a paint company writing about paint. Like if you, if you ever want a really difficult creative challenge, try to find an interesting way to get 600 words out of, you know, uh, Tahoe yellow. You just be like, all right, uh, <laughs> this will make a great accent wall to your new house, blah, 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 blah. Um, so yeah, I, I kind of bounced around doing various writing jobs and, uh, making comics and writing comics and then 
but I moved to Los Angeles. Basically, I, I was living in San Diego, writing for that paint company. And I was like, this fucking sucks, bro. Like, I want to write and I want to draw. I want to make stuff, tell stories, but I, I really don't want to work at this fucking paint company anymore. And I came home one day and I lived in a pretty rough area. And um, unfortunately, there was a there was a woman who um, I'm assuming was a drug addict because I don't think the human body moves this way if you're not on something. And she was overdosing on my my front steps. And it was just like a wake up call. I, I, you know, went inside, I called the ambulance, they came out, they got her, they helped her, I hope. Um, she was like frothing at the mouth and twitching in the in the street. And um, I was just like, this is intense. And life is short. What do I want to do? I want to write. And I want to not be in San Diego anymore. I'm going to move to LA, try and break into movie stuff and make comics. And uh, I had just gotten back from the comic book store and um, uh, Casanova, Casanova volume three, issue four had just come out. Casanova is my favorite comic of all time. It's a spy comic about a guy who travels in between dimensions. And um, I opened it up, I read it, and the, the last page is Casanova Quinn, the main character, standing in front of the, ho- the, ho- the Hollywood sign. And I was like, fuck, man, I don't really believe in extra, you know, uh, 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 signs, signs. I don't really believe in like religious symbolism or like, but fuck, man, this is like the universe telling me I got to go to LA. I got to do this. All right. All right. I'm going to do it. And then I start reading the letters column, which was on the, the back of that page. And the first letter is from me that I had written in like two years prior. And I was like, all right. I got to do it. And like two weeks later, I was working in LA, writing commercials for a company and uh, starting work on the webcomic Action Hospital, which is how I met basically all of my LA friends um, and my longtime creative partner, Nicole Gu, because I would just go, basically I got to LA and I was like, all right, I got to attack this like it's a full-time job, even if it's not. So whenever I wasn't working for the commercial company, writing commercials, I would go to artist meetups, I would go to comic book meetups, I would go to film networking events, and just try and meet people. Because, you know, I don't come from anybody who's connected, you know, like my, this, you know, local theater in, in Tucson, Arizona, ain't getting you a career directing the moving pictures, you know what I mean? And yeah, uh, yeah so I just would go to, I would go to um, networking events, or I would go to sketchbook uh, sessions or plain air sessions, or um, there used to be a really cool drink and draw in downtown Los Angeles um, that doesn't really exist anymore. I mean, it does, but it's, it's not really the same. Um, and uh, I would just meet people and I'd be like, hey, I'm working on this webcomic. Uh, do you want to draw eight page stories? Because that's what it is. I write them all, and there's going to be eight page stories. I can't pay you, but it'll be a fun experience, and we'll get to make things, and there'll be an end product that you can have as a portfolio piece. And I met a bunch of people yeah. that way. That's kind of what wow. started the started the journey. That was a little bit of a rambling explanation, but no, no, that was that was perfect. Um, so you know, we were talking about the fact that you know this is a life in which nothing is guaranteed and anything is possible. How it's possible you'll be poor for you know immense amounts of time. It's possible you'll die poor if you choose to you know go down this path. And 
I, I think that what intrigues me is, uh, you know, there's an article on the Harvard Business Review that this venture capitalist wrote titled The Creator Economy Has No Middle Class, which I, I think is, is really true, right? <clears throat> because if you look at, you know, sort of the creator economy on the internet, it, it you know, is it just it's a microcosm of the actual economy. I think we have what I call digital inequality, where a handful of people get the majority of the traffic on the web, a handful of people get the majority of funds on, you know, crowdfunding platforms like Patreon. Um, so in the, in the midst of all that, uh, how does somebody navigate the, the sort of landscape of the creator economy, uh, you know, while knowing that is all there? Because that's real. You can't ignore that. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. Um, and the way you, the way I navigate it is uh, don't worry about it. I, there's, I mean, what, what am I going to do? Like stress out that I don't have a billion followers? Like, I, I don't know. Like I just make stuff. Uh, I try and make work that I think is good. I try and, um, you know, like I, I did a Kickstarter last year that made like 22 grand or whatever, which to me, that's a lot of money, um, in the grand scheme of, you know, this conversation of the creator economy and, uh, this idea of digital inequality. Yeah, that's still, you know, bargain basement, nothing, but that's, that's not how I measure success. Um, I measure success as being able to produce my ideas. I measure success as building a network of friends and fan base and, and a fan base one person at a time. Um, you know, I, I'm a big fan of, of this B movie actor, um, Robert Zadar. Uh, he was in movies like uh, um, Maniac Cop um, and uh, Maniac Cop 2 and Maniac Cop 3. <laughs> and if anybody hasn't seen Maniac Cop, please go. It's his magnum opus. But he also made a career being in a ton of other movies, like just hundreds and hundreds of these kind of B and C list level genre movies. Uh, and his his whole shtick, basically, is he was an actor who had a disease or a, a, a disability um, where his, it's called cherubism, and his face, his chin, there was some sort of genetic anomaly where his body thought that his chin was calcium deficient. So over the course of his life, his chin and his face elongated. And it, uh, he's also in Tango and Cash, if anybody's seen Tango and Cash. Uh, I think his character's name in Tango and Cash is literally The Face. Um, which is odd because you would think it would be the chin, but whatever. Um, and, and so, you know, he took this, this, um, uh, this, this objective disadvantage and turned it into a way of not only supporting himself, but, um, making stuff that people connect with and, and relate to. And, um, you know, that might not mean something to, to somebody else, but to me as a, you know, a genre movie hound, um, that story is so uplifting and so cool. And did he have a tragic end where he died of cardiac arrest due to a life of, uh, habitual drug use, um, probably largely spawned by this malady? Yeah. But he connected with a lot of people and made a lot of really great work. And my rubric for success is that, uh, if I kick the bucket with one person getting as much as I got out of uh, Robert Zadar's body of work, I think that's a win, man. I think that's a win. You know, I mean, it's a little bit of a different conversation than you're having of how do we, you know, eat the digital rich, um, which I'm all for. Nom, 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 baby. 
but also like on an individual level, I can't control any of that. And I, I don't really concern myself with it. It's more just a, how can I make cool stuff and put one foot in front of the other? Because that's what a lot of being a creator on online is, you know, it's a, yeah. those micro gains, unfortunately. So just based on, on the way that you're talking about this, what I wonder is, um, did you grow up in an era that predated social media? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, we, yeah, yes, I did. Uh, which, you know, maybe that informs it. But I think that there's also just like, you kind of have to be a little bit of a nihilist and a little bit naive to try and do the things that I'm trying to do, you know? Like, if you looked at the numbers, you would get really dissuaded, you know? <laughs> like, so, so very few people are able to support themselves. You know, you just have to say, yeah, that's cool, but I don't give a shit. Like, I'm going to do this anyway, because what the fuck else is the other option, you know? <laughs> no, I, I I completely agree. I, I, I was writing this piece about, you know, the hidden danger of metrics and how metrics, you know, are kind of a double-edged sword because you can start to measure your worth as a creator uh, according to metrics. And then that it can be incredibly demotivating yeah. uh, because you're just constantly, you know, comparing yourself to other people. Yeah. And yeah, I think, so, I think for me that hey. I've, I've experienced that. I've experienced that. I've, I've, I've experienced a kind of like being able to see the code of the matrix moment. And that kind of has informed my kind of distaste or lack of concern with that. Like, obviously, do I want to be able to have a massive following? Yes. Do I have a little following? Yeah. Would it be cooler if it was millions of people? Hell yeah, baby. But I experienced a defining moment for me in that in like 2013 2012 when instagram first inter introduced video they selected me and like four or five other people um who were doing time-lapse drawings to be the kind of discover page video comic book people basically they they, they kind of had all of these different um verticals where they're like all right we're going to try and develop you know, video for uh, comics, video for comedy, video for this, video for that, whatever. And um, me, Jacqueline DeLeon, and like three or four other people all got picked because we just immediately started posting time lapses of us drawing. So the art or comics tag, if you were even remotely interested in that and you went on the explore page on Instagram, you would see one of our videos. And it was a really weird thing too. Cause it was just like, I just got like a push notification from Instagram that was like, you've been selected for this program. And I was like, what the fuck is this? This is so weird. And, uh, I posted a video of a time-lapse of me working on a page from the book that I was drawing at that time. And it got like 4.5 million views in a day, two days. And it was, that's the most viral anything I've done has ever gone. And, it was so interesting to see the funnel of like, all right, if it got 5 million views, it got 2,000 comments, it got 400 follows, and 20 of those followers are actual comic book people that engage with me on a regular basis. <laughs> you, you know what I mean? And that, that funnel was just so eye-opening of like, oh, yeah. okay, all right, this is bullshit. Like, I understand that, you know, I understand how the the Instagram algorithm works and the TikTok algorithm works and all that stuff. But it's still just like, mm, this is not like 
sustainable on, on a, on a, a normal level. Right. Um, and you know, after that kind of experience, my profile rose, I got a lot more followers from it. You know, uh, I had a couple other videos go pseudo viral, basically because of that same program. And then Instagram was just like, yeah, we're good. We're not going to keep doing this anymore. And uh, it was it was a, a big kind of eye opening experience for me, right? I, I kind of saw how the system works firsthand. You know, it's one thing to be told those things. It's another thing to experience 4 million views. Yeah. And and be like, oh, okay, all right, I see how this works, and y- you can't chase that dragon, or at least for me, like I I can't chase that dragon. Like, that, does that mean that I'm not putting stuff online? Does that mean that I'm not trying to promote the work? Does that mean that I'm, you know, one of these people who's just like, oh, I'm just gonna create in a vacuum, and eventually someone will find it? Like, no, obviously not. Um, but I just don't take it personal anymore. Like, if something is successful and gets used and stuff, cool. If it doesn't whatever, moving on. Yeah. I mean, I've heard a similar story from a friend of mine who told me about some Instagram model or somebody who wanted to start a t-shirt line and she had had investors lined up and they said, and she had millions of followers and they told her, if you can get people to buy 10 t-shirts, we will fund the company. And she couldn't even move 10 t-shirts with millions of followers. You couldn't just call 10 friends and be like, fucking buy a shirt. <laughs> yeah. But I, I mean, I think you bring up a good point because you're highlighting sort of uh, what I think is a misperception in culture about the value of a large social media following, particularly for creative people. And this is something I've always said is that you can't hide shitty art behind great marketing. Eventually, yes. it'll be revealed for what it is. Yes. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And I think also that, you know... Um, there's an interesting tension between those two, right? I think it's kind yeah. of, it's a, it's a fascinating, deeply human, uh, experiment. I mean, I, I'm and in some ways a negative way. Like I, I don't think that it's positive that our deeply subjective human experience has been flattened into ones and zeros and is now turned into bikini pics and paid promotional posts. Like, I don't know that that's positive for anybody. Um, but yet here we are. So let's fucking rock and roll, baby. <laughs> yeah. So I have a question out of personal and morbid curiosity. Um, what is the, the actual process for, you know, bringing a comic to life? Because you know, one of the things I realized is we're going back to our interviews. My roommate and I were on a 17 hour drive back from Wisconsin and we're like, you know, podcast transcripts suck. He said, well, what if you turned your transcripts into a comic book? And he's like, you can actually do that because you have the stories. And so I started storyboarding it. But now that I have you here, I'm trying to think of, okay, how do I know what to verbalize and what to illustrate? And, um, you know, uh, Seth Godin always refers to this book, uh, Understanding Comics by Scott McCloud. And he said, it's a, you know all about what happens between the panels. So you know, what is the, this process? Like, how do you decipher what to keep in and what to leave out and, and really bring it to life and tell the story? Yeah. Um, I mean, for me, I'm, I'm obsessed with comics formalism. I'm somebody who loves the nuts and bolts of comics and how words and pictures interact in the human mind as a Hieronymus machine, synthesizing all of these data streams into a single cohesive vision. Um, I love the medium. Uh, I love the, the, the weirdos who've pushed the medium forward. And uh, I'm I'm excited about the fact that there's still so much uncovered ground, you know, like both comics and film are 
basically mediums that have a hundred years worth of history, which is crazy when you think about it. Where paintings have been around for like 34,000 years, but comics and film, the two mediums that I care about most, um, are so young. And comics has been censored and truncated for the majority of its existence, which means that there's this grand vista of new things to be accomplished and explored. Um, the pedantic response uh, to your question is you write a script, which is usually delineated into panel by panel beats. Um, panel one, Joe walks into the door. Panel two, Joe sits down on the couch. Panel three, Joe cries himself to sleep on the couch. Um, and then the next stage is um, either myself, because I do it all, or a uh, an artist will pencil the pages, they'll draw the various images, and then um, on a page, um, then it'll get inked, then it'll get scanned to the computer, then it'll get colored on the computer, then it'll get lettered, um, where the letterer and or me um, will create word balloons and drop in the text from the script into the word balloons, and then it'll get laid out in InDesign, and then the PDF will get sent to the printer, and then there'll be two months of haggling with a printer and being like, this isn't the right paper stock. <laughs> and then the books will show up at your house and you'll be like, ah, oh, yeah, this is great. Oh, but wait, there's this typo that I missed. <laughs> um, but in terms of what you're talking about of like, what's the moment to select? Um, that's, that's, that's the interesting part about comics, right? Like movies, you're watching time sustain uh, and you're watching continuous flow of time in comics you're watching time frozen so you're watching almost kind of like if if a movie is watching rain falling and you're watching in real time the droplets of water falling from the sky through the air and smacking into the ground a comic is as an author you're picking what is the most interesting moment or what is the most me moment to pick in that scenario is you know is your is your artistic sensibility that you like it when it just starts to rain and so that you see the cloud you see the clouds that are uh, just starting to unleash the water but the water hasn't hit the ground and the characters are looking up with the knowledge that water is coming is it um characters being initially drenched is it characters having stand stood out in the rain for five minutes having this conversation while it's raining that's the the kind of uh, interesting conundrum of the medium for me is that it is it requires a very precise hand and nine times out of ten it is produced by multiple people which is really interesting because then you have to sustain a creative vision over multiple humans which is way hard to do uh, especially when there's not a shitload of money like in movies where you can just pay people to not have their opinions and to take your opinions in comics, nine times out of ten, you're working with people that are just doing it to do it. So you kind of are like, hey, uh, but but what if it was just when the clouds open up? <laughs> and they're like, nah, I think it's better if they're standing out in the rain for 15 minutes. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it's a it's it's fascinating though. This, I, this is that 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 um, toggling back and forth between which version of reality you live in is very interesting to me. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, you know, we one of the things that my roommates and I did, you know, in the middle of the pandemic or 
what we thought was the middle of the pandemic uh, was we decided <laughs> to go through you know all of the universe uh, the entire Marvel universe and afterwards I got the Marvel encyclopedia and I think that what really struck me was just how complex it was that one guy could just conceive this entire universe that was so interrelated and all the characters related somehow uh, and you know that turned into like this billion dollar empire and it's funny by one guy you mean talking. Jack Kirby right is it Jack Kirby and Stan Lee, right? Or is it all Stan? Who, who is the guy who deserves the credit? Uh, well, one, I don't think there is one guy that deserves the credit. Uh, I think that's a fallacy that movie companies like to perpetuate because it makes it easy to point at kindly old Stan. Um, but the reason Stan Lee has cameos in all those movies is because he won a lawsuit settlement in the early 2000s, not because he created all the characters. Like, he literally didn't create Captain America. He was 19 uh, when Captain America was created by Joe, Joe Simon and Jack Kirby. Uh, he was their assistant, um, and uh, like he didn't That's right. create the gardens. He didn't create the gardens of the galaxy. He didn't, he didn't do any of that stuff. But then there's also this other conversation, which we don't necessarily have to get into, just because it's a more kind of circuitous, longer conversation. But there's a discussion to be had of did Stan create anything? Because I don't know if you're familiar, but the Marvel method, in air quotes, was the way that he um, designed things to work at Marvel. So Stan Lee was Martin Goodman, who was the owner of Timely, which later rebranded as Marvel Comics. He was his, basically his, his like nephew-in-law. Um, and uh, he was an editor at the company and got so much kind of leeway due to his familial connections that he kind of figured out a way to take credit for a lot of stuff that he didn't do. The Marvel method is basically Stan would write a paragraph give it to an artist, whether that be Stan Lee or uh, Jack Kirby or Steve Ditko or John Romita Sr. or any of the, the stalwart kind of writer artists at the company. There were actual people who could write comics and actual people who could draw comics. And they would, based off of that beat sheet, that paragraph, they would create fully broken down, panel by panel, finished pages with temporary dialogue written in. And then Stan would come in and go over the top of that temporary dialogue and kind of massage it a little bit or change it or make it, you know, zhuzh it up or whatever. And, yeah. you know, there are some people who think that that is a, a very valuable and um, piece of the creative puzzle that is inextricable from the success of the Marvel Universe. And there are some people who think that um, that is uh, the role of an editor. <laughs> You know, yeah. uh, and, uh, and it's, it's a, it, you know, obviously it's a very complex question. It's a very long discussion to have. Um, but it, it, it's one that I like to bring up whenever somebody says, you know, well, there's one person created all that stuff. It's like, eh, that should like Marvel comics has been publishing for 80 years. And like, yeah, Stan and Jack created in air quotes, created the, the X-Men, but like, let's be real. Chris Claremont is the person who made the X-Men what they are, you know, and every character, every franchise has something like that. Like, yes, Wally Wood and Stanley co-created Daredevil, but Daredevil wouldn't be Daredevil without Frank Miller. You know what I mean? And like, there's yeah. all of these case and points of like, everyone wants the simple solution. Everyone wants, this is the person to point to where, unfortunately, uh, life is a lot messier than that and a lot more complex, um, especially when it involves uh, a medium that is uh, not particularly respected, where there's not a lot of document docu documents to purport what actually happened. And uh, 
and uh, uh, clean up some of these weird gray areas. Because sometimes characters would come from, you know, a car ride. Like there's, mm-hmm. you know, the urban legend is that Silver Surfer got birthed from a car ride from from Long Island where Stan and Jack were driving into the Manhattan office after picking up John Romita Sr. And they were having a conversation about like, we need something, we need some some sort of person to like, set up galactus as as this big bad like what are we going to do like well what if there's like a he's got like a herald that like flies in front of him and like warns people that he's going to come and like oh all right yeah but what what would he be i don't know kids like surfing these days what if he was like surf the sky (laughs) which is the most jack kirby idea um and i love it naked silver guy on a surfboard only jack kirby could make that work yeah Wow. Yeah, I mean, even in, in just having this conversation with you, you know, so, uh, you know, when we're Indian kids are, you know, well versed in Hindu mythology, you know, the Mahabharata and Ramayana. The funny thing is that, you know, we learned all of that from reading comic books when we were mm, kids. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have uh, some of those. I, I bought a bunch of the, the, the I've never actually They're really read good. Them. Yeah, they're, I, they they're look really, cool. And, and they're really easy ways to understand things that, you know, seem incredibly complex, but are not. But I remember thinking, looking at this, I was like, why couldn't somebody create a Marvel universe from this, like a modern day retelling of this entire story and turn these people into modern day superheroes? Like that was one of the ideas I had. I was like, that's a potential billion dollar franchise in the making, just in yeah, case you, yeah. you know, wanted to dive back into it. Um, yeah, I think they, I think that, that, I mean, it's not exactly what you're talking about, but there was in like 2007 or 2006, there were Virgin Comics tried to do something along those lines where they had like a line of, they had like two lines. This is my memory of it. They had like a line that was basically comics based off of ideas from famous movie directors. And then they had a line of comics that was based off of Hindu mythology. I think I'm, it, mm-hmm. this is all so dimly recollected though. Um, yeah. Yeah. But I, I mean, yeah, it'd be cool. I'd read them. Wow. Wow. Well, um, this has been really, really fascinating. Uh, so I have a one final question for you, which is how we finish all of our interviews at the unmistakable creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Mm. Uh, I would say that something is unmistakable when it is, um, undeniably, uh, personal. I think that's, I think that's the, the key to a lot of successful artwork. And also going back to our conversation about kind of digital work ecosystems, a lot of why things don't work, you know, um, because sometimes the, uh, <laughs> the, the, the world shies away from, uh, the deeply personal, um, in commercial settings, I think in an artistic mm-hmm. setting, the more personal it is, the more universal it is, and the more artistically successful it can be. Um, in a commercial setting, um, I think those scales sometimes tend to be flopped, which is why you get bland blockbusters that have, you know, the same story beats in every, you know, it's a father and son story. It's a redemption story, you know. Um, but yeah, I think something is, unmistakable when you can when you feel the 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 authorial hand behind it when you can feel that someone even if you don't know what the personal metaphor is but you can feel there's a personal metaphor behind it um 
that that's what I look for anyway. And what I think is mm. interesting work is when you can tell someone is writing a story for you and for them, and sometimes of the same story, and sometimes they're not. And I think that's really an mm. interesting and beautiful uh, a thing. Wow. Amazing. Well, um, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your story and your wisdom and insights with our listeners. Where can people find out more about you, um, your work and everything they're up to? Yeah. Um, my book, everyone is tulip, um, is out right now from dark horse. It's about a young girl who moves to Los Angeles to become an actor and then gets sucked up into the high stakes world of YouTube performance art, which is a real thing. Um, Drawn by Nicole Gu, colored by Ellie Hall, written by yours truly, uh, available wherever books are sold. Um, I also have a Star Trek book that came out last week, uh, Star Trek Voyager 7's Reckoning, uh, illustrated by uh, Angel Hernandez, colors by Rhonda Patterson. Um, and uh, you can find me online at heydavebaker.com, uh, or if you want to listen to my podcast, which is a deep dive explainer podcast about weird or obscure topics. Uh, you can find that by searching deep cuts or deepcutspod.com. Awesome. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the unmistakable creative podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. 
That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at UH1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch, the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolves. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.